True Crime Fix is a podcast with adult themes and graphic descriptions of crime which may not be considered suitable for all ages. Please use your discretion when listening. All research has been conducted using material in the public domain and some opinions may not be that of the author or the host. Please remember that all victims are someone's loved one and all episodes are recorded in the utmost respect of their memory. You're listening to the True Crime Base Podcast with your host, Steve. Hello again everyone, and welcome to our 28th episode together and our first anniversary episode. If you've enjoyed the show so far, then please make sure that you've subscribed on your chosen podcast directory and all of the new episodes will automatically download for you. You can also listen to the new episodes through the website too, so go over to www.truecrimefixpodcast.co.uk and all of the episodes are at the base of the home The episodes are also available now on YouTube on the True Crime Fix channel. So please, if you do enjoy the show, spread the word as far as possible. I also want to take this opportunity to welcome Zachary and Penny into the True Crime Fix Patreon family. Thank you again for your continued support. Talking about Patreon, the fourth video cast is available for everyone of the Chief Inspector level and it focuses on the story of Alice Gross. One year ago this Saturday, February the 1st, I released the first two episodes, the case of Sofia Safodska and the case of the Al Rosa Villa shooting. Listening back to the early episodes, it's nice to gauge how far my journey has come and the horrific music that I thought gave it a creepy vibe. I really, really don't know what I was thinking. The minor celebration that I had when I received 28 downloads on my first day and being excited to know that people were listening to the show and it was not just my friends. So for the first anniversary, I thought I would do something slightly different and bring you some of the cases from my what I would like to call true crime quick fix. Basically, these are cases that I thought about covering throughout the last year but either because I couldn't find enough information to create a full episode, or I could not get the story to fit in with the ethos that I wanted to have for this podcast, they have not made it out of the planning stage. Therefore, instead of one case today, you're going to get a few shorter ones. Ones where the victims still deserve a voice. A couple of these cases will only be a matter of minutes, and then the slightly longer one towards the end. I'm going to couple that with a few stories about what has gone right and what has gone wrong for this podcast over the last year. So although we're going to go for a different format today, I hope that you enjoy this as much as the normal cases. I'm going to start right back at the very beginning, following an email that I was sent this week. A listener of mine, Faith Vasquez, asked quite an interesting question about how I came up with the name for the show. 
I thought it was a brilliant question as I had not revisited that thought process since I went through it. Hence, I thought I'd share it with you as well. My thought process for the name started in October 2018 when I decided categorically I was going to start this journey. I wanted something simple and catchy. Whether we like to admit it, the majority of us are addicted to these crime stories for one reason or another. Consequently, I started with true crime addiction, but I conducted some market research on my mates and the general consensus was that it was too wordy and it was too close to a book title with the same connotation in the title. So I thought about calling it Crime Fix, trying to follow the case file model of one word name, but there was also a segment on an American podcast with a very similar name. Therefore, I just added true to the start and here we are. With regards to the music, as I said on many occasions, I never intended to release this to the public. The initial intention was to record cases for my wife to fall asleep to, but it soon progressed and that meant that I put zero thought into any of the music. I just picked one off of a free licensing website and that was it. Later I added Alex's voice to it to make it slightly more personal and as they say the rest is history. The new music however was edited and produced by Alex from another license free website and I think it's slightly more fitting for me and the show as a whole. The first case that I wanted to cover when I started the show was that of a murder of a boy that I went to school with. So ladies and gentlemen, this is your true crime fix. I'm your host Steve, and the first segment is dedicated to the memory of Scott Walker. Scott Walker was born in 1988 in Hillingdon Hospital. He resided in the town of Eastcote with his family. He was a few years younger than us and he attended Queensmead Secondary School in South Ryslip. Scott would have come to Queensmead in September 1999 and although he was much younger than us he tried to get involved with a couple of the upper school games of football which would go on at break times. I can see him to this day His clothes, a bit too big for him, and his thick glasses unfortunately made him the brunt for a lot of the older students' jokes. It would be fair to say that he did fall in with the wrong crowd, with the realisation that he would do practically anything for acknowledgement or the sense of belonging. Poor Scott was asked to do things like dive on the concrete for the amusement of the people who he classed as friends. The issue was for us who tried to persuade him not to do this to himself. He was more interested in getting into the good books of the, in air quotes, cool kids. Alas, when it came to that, my own social stature meant that I could not really compete with that. His behaviour in class as well was disruptive to other students. One classmate remembered when I interviewed her. He lived in the wrong time. If it were now, I bet people would have been much more understanding of his capabilities and helped him more. He didn't really help himself though. He gave as good as he got sometimes, or would just start on people for no reason. But hindsight being 2020 vision, and knowing more about what I know now as an adult, there was obvious signs of neglect. As I mentioned previously, 
the clothes that he wore were always too big for him, and the slightly crumpled appearance of these clothes, coupled with the fact that Scott was always getting in trouble at school, would indicate some problems at home. Ultimately, he would be asked to leave school due to his behaviour issues before the rest of the year would graduate. On the 29th of May 2002, police were called to 151 Woodlands Avenue in Eastcote, a suburb in northwest London. When they arrived, Scott was found in the property with horrific head injuries. When the ambulance arrived, Scott was pronounced dead on the scene. He had died after being bludgeoned to death with a hammer. Unfortunately, it didn't take long for the police to discover the culprit. His father, John Walker, was known as a paranoid schizophrenic and had discharged himself from Hillingdon Hospital a few days prior to the death. On the 31st of May 2002, John Walker appeared before Uxbridge Magistrate Courts and was eventually committed to a psychiatric facility, but it was far too late. The thing is that the local authorities at Hillingdon Council and Social Services were aware of his mental health, allowing his son, who in the modern day might have been diagnosed with ADHD himself, to be left in an unstable home environment. So that is the first story for today, and tragically, the only people to show any interest in Scott's death was a 200-word article in the Evening Standard. Something that a lot of people don't really know about me is that I'm obsessed with the paranormal. I love going to places that I know are haunted, as I do like to think that there is something after this existence. I suppose that clues to that have already emerged during episode 6, the Jackie Paul story. The second story which I'm going to tell today was influenced by a visit that I made to a local landmark. After hearing this story, I set about researching it, but alas, due to the age, there is not much evidence or concrete dates. This is another short story which is well and truly embedded in High Wycombe folklore and I really wish there was further information on this case which could be backed up by official records. But it is an intriguing story, and I'm still going to tell you about it. So ladies and gentlemen, the second segment of today's episode is dedicated to the story of Suki. West Wickham is a village in the county of Buckinghamshire, and just like the name would suggest, is very close to the town of High Wickham. The Hellfire Caves at West Wickham are considered to be one of the most haunted locations in the UK. TV's Most Haunted, featuring Yvette Fielding and Derek Akora, and the American show Ghost Hunters Paranormal Teams, visited the caves and found plenty of evidence that the caves were haunted. So what was so special about the caves? The caves were commissioned by Sir Francis Dashwood, Francis Dashwood had inherited the title the 11th Baron Le Dispenser from his father in 1724 and set up home in Wickham. He would later become the Chancellor of the Exchequer under Prime Minister John Stuart. The caves were completed in 1752 
taking six years for workmen to finish extending the natural cave system to the half a mile tunnel complex which still exists today. A long winding passage leads past various small chambers to the banqueting hall and then over the river Styx to the inner temple. The original cave system was thought to have been the site of a pagan altar in ancient times. Sir Francis Dashwood in his younger years travelled to Europe and he was introduced to Freemasonry. Sir Francis joined several Freemason lodges on his travels and when he came back to England he decided to start his own society, the Monks of the Bednam. The group was only called the Hellfire Club in more recent times. Those involved included Lord Sandwich, who held the title First Lord of the Admiralty under a number of different British Prime Ministers. John Wilkes, another member of the British Parliament at the time for the County of Middlesex. Benjamin Franklin, one of the founding fathers of the United States, was an occasional visitor as well as other numerous senior aristocrats and statesmen. The Hellfire Club's main activities included drinking copious amounts of alcohol, debauchery and occult rituals which were carried out in the inner temple directly 300 feet below St Lawrence's Church. Just your average Friday night out in now what is a university town. These black magic rituals are thought to have been one of the reasons for the paranormal activity in Hellfire Caves. In the late 18th century, a chambermaid at the local Georgian Dragon by the name of Suki dreamt of one day getting a better life for herself. She longed to marry into wealth and regularly turned down the advances of the local boys feeling that she could do much better for herself. One day, a wealthy businessman stopped at the inn and took a shine to young Suki, who was 16 at the time. One night, not long after he had finished residing at the inn, she received a note asking her to meet him in the caves so that they could elope and get married. Suki could not believe her luck and made sure that she made the necessary arrangements, purchasing a new wedding dress and counted down the days for her new life to begin. Rumour has it that Suki knew of an underground tunnel that went from the Georgian Dragon to the main hall in the Hellfire Caves. One of the reasons behind the secrecy of the Hellfire Caves Club was that the majority of actions which took place underground were illegal, including the consumption of counterfeit alcohol. The tunnel which was used by Suki, was allegedly one that ran barrels of alcohol to the public house without detection. When she arrived at the main banquet hall in her wedding dress, she waited for the nobleman. It was then that she was confronted by three laughing youths. She discovered that the three local boys were behind the notes, which were apparently from the businessman, and were waiting for her to mock her citing her airs and graces. Highly embarrassed, a fight erupted between the boys and Suki, where loose stones from around the cave were being thrown. 
depending which story you hear, she was either killed in the passages from a blow to the head from one of the boys, or, as she tried to flee, she tripped, hitting her head on a rock. Either way, her body was discovered in the caves the following morning. Because of the goings-on which surrounded the Hellfire Caves, the crime was covered up and no one was brought to justice. Suki's ghost is most often seen in the banqueting hall, where numerous sightings of a young lady dressed in a white Victorian-style wedding dress have been reported. Visitors have also reported hearing screams and crying coming from the banqueting hall. I can say that I had an experience down there, which I could not explain, but that's a story for another time. This is not the only story from folklore that I've been asked to talk about by my listeners. I've been bugged for a number of months to cover the story of Sawney Bean by one of the admins on the Facebook group. Once again, this is a story where the actual physical evidence is limited due to it happening in the late 14th, early 15th century. The case is incredibly barbaric and goes against everything that this podcast stands for, but I'll bend the rules for the anniversary episode. A Sawney Bean was a cannibal. But this story is quite interesting. If anyone's seen the film, The Hills Have Eyes, the film was based on this Scottish story. Alexander Bean was born in East Lothian, the next county east of the city of Edinburgh, in the latter half of the 1300s. His father was a ditch digger and a hedge trimmer, and Bean tried to take up the family trade, but quickly realised that he had little taste for honest labour. In about 1400, Bean was forced to flee his family home, after forming a relationship with a woman known as Agnes Douglas. The reason behind the couple having to leave the family was that Black Agnes Douglas, as she was known, was widely believed to be a witch. Alexander and Agnes made their way across southern Scotland as outlaws, eventually finding and settling in a cave at Benen Head, on what is now the South Ayrshire coast near Ballantry. The cave was 200 yards deep and the entrance to the cave was cut off by the sea at high tide and this is said to have helped them evade discovery for 25 years. To begin with, they made a living by robbing and murdering passing travellers, storing their victims more traceable valuables and using the cash they had raised this way to provide for life's essentials. But this lifestyle became more difficult to sustain unnoticed as the Bean family grew. Alexander and Agnes are said to have produced eight sons and six daughters, who in turn are said to have incestually produced 18 grandsons and 14 granddaughters. As the family grew older and due to the diet stronger, the clan began to kill up to half a dozen people a day. The Beans came up with a simple solution to the problem of feeding their rapidly growing family. Rather than just robbing and murdering their victims, 
they took to eating them as well, pickling anything not immediately consumed for later use. But in about 1430, the Beans ambushed a man and his wife who were on their way home from a local fete. The man was able to fight them off as their attention was on his wife, first stripping her naked before disemboweling her. The man used his horse as a weapon, steering it towards his attackers and putting up a fight before other travellers on the road came to his aid, around 20 people returning from the same fate. The Bean Clan found themselves at a numerical disadvantage and, as they had never encountered this before, retreated, leaving the woman's body behind. Until then, there had been no living witnesses to the existence of the family, but once it became clear that the disappearances in the area were the responsibility of a group of savage outlaws, the man was taken to the chief magistrate of Glasgow, who was putting two and two together, as there was now a long list of people missing locally. The magistrate gathered a small army of his own to go and hunt them down. It is said that King James I personally led the hunt for the beans. The only fact that really allows any part of this story to be dated and leads away from the belief that this story was fiction. Hundreds of men with dogs scoured every inch of the surrounding countryside, eventually discovering the cave at Benin Head, complete with the evidence of mass murder and cannibalism. The damp walls of the cave were lined with human limbs. In other areas, the clothes and jewellery which had been stolen were also stored. The Bean family were taken in chains to Edinburgh. Here, after the briefest of judicial processes, they were found guilty of their charged crimes of cannibalism, murder and other minor crimes. The clan were now 45 strong and all the male members of the family were executed by having their hands and feet chopped off before being left to bleed to death. The female members of the family, all 21 of them on the other hand, were burnt at the stake. Is this story truth or fiction? Well, there is a distinct lack of real historical evidence for this story, which, if true, would have involved the disappearance of thousands of people over a prolonged period of time. Saying that, in those days, documentary evidence was in the form of a poem or a song. The Ballad of Sawney Dean exists and tells the horrific tale, but I'll let you make your own mind up. Also surely, a story which ended with the manhunt led personally by the king plus the max execution of the men, women and children of the Bean family would surely have left some documentary evidence at the time. Before I go on to the final case this week, I just wanted to address a few things that have not gone well so far for this podcast. No one will ever prepare you for some of the hurtful things that people will say about you or the show that you release for free every fortnight. I'm not going to give the people the time of day to give examples. But please, people, if you don't like what I do, you're not obligated to listen. 
I try my hardest to do this show and dedicate a lot of time to the stories I release. It therefore sucks to read some of the things that I have to. As you can probably gather from the stories so far, they've all been ones about people who have been betrayed by people that they should have been able to trust. Well, apart from Sawney Bean's story, but I'd written that last line before I decided to include that. So, for dramatic effect, please just pretend it's true, as it leads us on to the final story for today. And this one is heartbreaking. I've been really lucky that when I have been struggling to meet deadlines for episodes, and I'm getting stressed out, my wife Ashley will quite often step in and write a case. So far she has written Gemma Hayter's story, Reese Jones's story and April's story and she's working on a very famous British case for this season. I just want to publicly declare that without Ashley's support I really don't think I could have continued as long as I have. This is another of her tragic cases that will close the show. There is no stronger bond in this world than of a mother and her children. The love between a mother and her child is like no other, a bond uniting two bodies and two souls. A mother's love is unconditional and eternal. A mother's arms are made of tenderness where a child can lay soundly. People would never imagine that that bond could be broken by murder. And, in this situation, the person who gave life, love and care has it taken away by that very same person. For the final time today, ladies and gentlemen, this is your True Crime Fix. I'm your host Steve, and this closing segment is dedicated to the memory of Carol Taggart. Carol was born on the 10th of December 1960 in the beautiful town of Dunfermline in Scotland. Dunfermline is the ancient capital of Scotland before it was relocated to the modern day capital of Edinburgh in around 1400. The town is situated on high ground, three miles from the northern shore of the Firth of Forth. Carol gave birth to her eldest boy Ross in 1986 and four years later after meeting Sean Taggart who would later become her husband she gave birth to her youngest daughter Lorraine. Ross was very protective of his little sister always looking out for her. They were close siblings who were always together. Even though Sean was not Ross's biological father He treated Ross as if he was his own, and Ross grew up calling Sean Dad. Lorraine stated that she was always very close to her father, and was undeniably a daddy's girl. Whereas Ross was very much a mummy's boy. Ross was considered the golden child, and as he grew up, he really relied and depended on his mother Carol for pretty much everything. Carol's maternal instincts meant that she would pander to Ross 
and she would see the best in Ross even when Sean would criticise his life choices throughout adolescence and adulthood. Sean and Carol argued constantly over Ross and his behaviour and eventually Ross drove a wedge between Sean and Carol. Ross was described by his family as lazy and he couldn't hold down a job or maintain a relationship with a girlfriend. Carol protected her son, however eventually in 2010, Sean and Carol went their separate ways. Ross was 23 and Lorraine was 19. On reflection though, both Sean and Lorraine believed that Ross was the reason that the relationship fell apart. After the breakup, Carol was suffering from bouts of depression and she would attend counselling and doctor's appointments to try and combat this. Lorraine would support her mother by accompanying her to different facilities that dealt with mental health issues such as anxiety and depression and her doctor's appointments but things didn't improve. They progressively got worse and worse and Lorraine would say that her mum was lost. On the other hand, Ross would exploit the hold he had over her in the emotional and vulnerable state that she was in. He was using her. Lorraine would say to Carol, Ross was bleeding her dry. With Sean now out of the picture, Carol and Ross grew closer. Eventually, Lorraine would move out of the family home and moved in with her long-term partner, Stephen. Ross finally had his mother to himself. Their relationship, on the other hand, was perceived as most bizarre. Friends would reference them as partners, not mother and son. They socialised a lot together, going to restaurants, bars and on holidays together. The more time they spent together, the more that Carol would end up depending on Ross although he didn't feel the same. Ross was manipulating his mother for financial gains. Ross's hold on his mother intensified as Sean and Carol began to communicate again about two and a half years after breaking up and they began to discuss about giving their relationship another chance. Carol told Sean that she wanted to speak with Ross about this before she agreed in hindsight showing how the control over her life had escalated. This caused another argument between Sean and Carol, as he did not understand why Carol would have to ask Ross's permission. Did she need his permission? His approval? Sean would ask. Lorraine married Stephen in August 2013, and by the next year they had given birth to a baby boy, Lucas. However, Carol was yet to meet her grandson, as Ross's behaviour made it impossible for mother and daughter to arrange a time to meet. One cold night in December, two days before Christmas Day, a call was made by Ross to the local police. Hiya. Hi there, can I take a note of your son name please? It's Tiger, T-A-T-T-A-R-T. First name? Ross. I stay, well, that's the thing, I stay here with my mum. <laughs> right. And what's your mum's name? Eh, uh, Carol. C-E-R-O-L? Yeah. Taggart? Yeah. 
And what's that, a bus or...? A 10 Right, so when she left the house, when did she last year? Uh, about one o'clock on uh, Monday morning. Had there been any argument or...? That's, that's the thing, we had an argument. Uh, she's been a bit depressive and uh, my problem is <laughs> we had the doctor in last week and she even told the doctor that she was feeling so, well, she didn't want to be here anymore was the words she used. Ross had reported his mother missing to Dunfermline Police. He had stated that they had argued and he was concerned for her safety as she had not been home. Carol was classed as a high-risk missing person as her background was one which caused concern. The fact that she'd been diagnosed with depression and was on medication for it, coupled with the fact that she'd been missing for 24 hours without them, were the main concerns for the police. Ross explained to the police that his mother was suicidal. She had apparently mentioned it to Ross and the doctor that she didn't want to be here anymore. Once Lorraine found out Carol was missing, she tried calling her mum's mobile, which was off. Lorraine believed that it was strange, as her mother's phone was glued to her hand or hip. She never left the house without it. As the night went on, the family became more and more concerned. Lorraine admitted that she had always doubted Ross's story about the argument and Carol storming off. On Christmas Day 2014, however, came the news that the family had been dreading. The police called Lorraine to explain that they had located Carol's car, which contained her handbag, purse and phone. But there was still no sighting of Carol. It was then that Lorraine knew that something horrific had happened to her mum. On Boxing Day, Ross had attended Dunfermline Police Station and had been looking for an update. Watching the CCTV, which I'll try and find and post on the discussion Facebook page, you can see the lack of emotion on Ross's face and the fact that he comes across quite jovial in the situation. Ross was trying to find out how much the police knew. Sean and Lorraine were beside themselves with grief, but in the days after, Ross Taggart reported his mother missing. Unbeknownst to him, Ross's movements were covertly under surveillance. Police were making inquiries with the family regarding his behaviour in the weeks and months leading up to Carol's disappearance. His attitude was not one of a person in despair or concerned, but of a person living the high life. Ross was spotted on CCTV withdrawing money from his mother's account at a cash machine and buying drinks in a local bar. He also visited local retailers and used his mother's card for purchases. In fact, between the 22nd and the 31st of December, Ross had spent £700 from Carol's bank account and accrued £380 in charges on her credit card. While Lorraine and Sean were emotional and confused by the disappearance of Carol, Ross's actions were completely different. On the 11th of January 2015, at 8am, 
three weeks after Ross had reported his mother Carol missing, the family received news that they had been dreading. A body had been found. Lorraine was asked by the police to conduct an identification to confirm that it was indeed her mother's body. Due to the extent of the injuries to Carol, Lorraine had to identify her by the distinctive brightly coloured tattoo that she had on her wrist. Carol's body had been found battered and strangled in a caravan park. Her body had been wrapped in bedding and bound in twine under a caravan at Petitcour Bay near the city of Fife, close to a caravan that Carol owned. CCTV obtained showed that Ross was wandering around the park early on Christmas Eve morning, which is when the police believed that the body had been hidden before he phoned through the missing persons report. The severity of the attack was made clear. She was strangled so vigorously that her neck had been broken. On the 14th of January 2015, three days after Carol's body had been found, Ross Taggart was arrested and charged with the murder of his mother and perverting the course of justice. Even though Ross had been in custody for suspicion of the murder of his mother, he applied to attend her funeral. The law in the United Kingdom states that this is within his human rights to attend, however his request was later rejected after pleas from his family. How could a murder suspect attend the funeral of his victim? Ross Taggart's trial commenced on the 12th of November 2015 at the High Court in Edinburgh. During the trial, Ross had stood by his story that him and his mother had an argument and that she had stormed out of the house. But during the proceedings, a mystery woman gave evidence against Ross. She spoke about how Ross had contacted her through an internet dating site and how he had driven around to her house for casual sex. He drove to her address in his mother's car. The same address where the police later found and reported Carol's car to be. Unbeknownst to this mystery witness, he had discarded his own mother's body only a few hours beforehand. Psychiatrists are led to believe that the reason that Ross went searching for casual sex after brutally murdering his mother was due to the fact that he was turned on by the sense of power and dominance and did not want to lose that feeling. On the 25th of November, the jury was back within an hour and Ross Taggart was found guilty. He was jailed for life and told he would serve a minimum of 18 years in prison. On sentencing, Lord Eust made the following statement in court. Ross Taggart, you have been convicted by a unanimous verdict of the jury of the terrible crime of the murder of your own mother, a woman who did a great deal, indeed probably too much, for you in the course of her life. In the course of an argument on the 21st or 22nd of December last year, you caused her head injuries and throttled her to death. 
you thereafter embarked on a calculated course of deceit by reporting her as missing to the police and persistently lying about your actions. Within hours of having taken your mother's life, you accessed a dating website on the internet and arranged for later that day a casual sexual encounter with a woman previously unknown to you. You wrapped your mother's body in linen from the house and caravan which she owned, tied together with twine from your bedroom in the caravan, and placed it in the void under the wooden stairway in a nearby caravan, where it was discovered by the police on the 11th of January this year. You have shown no regret or remorse, and even continued to deny your involvement before the jury in the face of the overwhelming and unanswerable evidence against you. Your responses to that evidence against you was at some times ludicrous. How you have lived with your conscience since you murdered your mother I do not know. The sentence for murder is fixed by law and I must now impose that sentence on you. I sentence you to imprisonment for life. I must also fix the punishment part of your sentence, which is the period you must spend in full prison in order to satisfy the requirements of the punishment and the deterrence before you can even apply to the parole board for Scotland to be released out on licence. In fixing that period I have to take into account not only the circumstances of the murder itself, but also of your conduct. I fixed the punishment part of this sentence at 18 years. You must not assume that you'll be automatically released at the end of that period. You will only be released when the parole board for Scotland is satisfied that you are no longer necessary for the protection of the public that you continue to be confined in prison. Your sentence will run from the 14th of January 2015. After sentencing, Lorraine Taggart wept as she spoke outside court. She said, As a family, we will try and move forward. However, given today's outcome, we shall never get over my mum Carol's death. We will simply get further away from the event. Despite her strong-willed nature, she was loved by us all and is missed every day by us and we are devastated by how cruelly she was taken from us. After sentencing, John Dunn, Procurator Fiscal, or the Public Prosecutor for the East of Scotland, said, Ross Taggart murdered his mother and then sought to cover up his callous crime by concealing her body and pretending that she'd left the area after an argument. All murders are shocking, but the murder of a parent by one of her own children makes it particularly so. It was an appalling crime which stunned not only all those who knew Carol, but also the local community. Our thoughts are with the family and friends of Carol. However, it did not end there. When the last will and testament of Carol Ann Taggart was published, it revealed she showered praise on her son for caring for her throughout a period of illness 
and wanted him to have the majority of her fortune. By the laws of this country, however, due to the obvious fact that he was responsible for her passing, he is banned from receiving any money. She gifted him her £300,000 home in Dunfermline, its furniture and her child-minded business. In the will, she wrote that she was leaving him the assets in consideration of the fact that during my illness, Ross has stayed with me and supported me and in doing so, given up a large part of his freedom and activities. Lorraine, on the other hand, had been cut out of the will completely and is still campaigning along with other family members to have a legal loophole closed which allowed a killer to be appointed executor of the estate. Ross cannot personally receive any money under Scottish law, but has control over decisions relating to the estate and has refused to allow the family access to the house to retrieve mementos. Lorraine continued and said, I'm certain that Ross forced my mum into writing this will. She had a number of different wills throughout her life, but it was changed so he got most of the money. My mum was a very vulnerable woman and Ross played on that to try and get her money. She had suffered from depression for a number of years and she had cancer. She added, He has control over her estate and is stalling on selling the house. It's awful to have to live with it. This is not about the money for me. I just want into the house to collect some belongings and get it sold so that I can close this chapter of my life. The total value of Carol's estate was recorded as £486,396. Her wealth included a £160,000 life insurance policy and the cash that was held in several bank accounts. The documents revealed that Carol wrote the will in March 2013, just under two years before she was killed, and signed it in the presence of a solicitor. To be appointed executor, Ross had to sign a declaration confirming the date and location of his mum's death. He gave his address as HMP Edinburgh, where he's currently serving his sentence. So that's it for this week. I hope you still found this episode as interesting, despite the fact that it was on a different format. I'll be going back to the normal format next time. Please remember, if you've enjoyed the show or want to know more, please follow us on Twitter at TrueCrimeFixPod. The podcast also has a Facebook page, True Crime Fix Podcast, but there's also a fan page, True Crime Fix Discussion. As I always say, I'm thoroughly enjoying interacting with everyone on there, and this is where I post the majority of information on the week's cases. You can also visit the new website, www.truecrimefixpodcast.co.uk. Also a reminder that the podcast is now on Patreon, so please visit www.patreon.com forward slash true crime fix podcast. I also have an Instagram account, so please search true crime fix. 
I'm starting to post more to Instagram because Ashley's actually shown me how to use it. So more will be coming in the following days and months. Also, if you have any suggestion or feedback for the show, please contact me at truecrimefixpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, stay safe, look after each other, and live life to the fullest, because you never know who or what might be coming around the next corner. Take care, everyone. (laughs) 